It's good to see you all again this morning. John chapter 8 is where you can be turning. It struck me this morning as we were singing, it struck me in that last song that we sang. I asked the Lord, I don't know if you're like me, I remember the first time that I heard that song, I sort of did a double take. It's a bit of an unusual song in that it, it seems to me it's kind of a ballad of um, how it's true of our God. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, uh, that in him loving us, what he, is, what he must do is open our eyes to see hard things that are true, but that are painful, uh, if we are to come to him. It struck me as we were singing that that's a very fitting song in preparation for our time in God's word this morning. He's doing something similar in passages like this. The fact is that we have great needs that require that our eyes be opened to certain painful truths about ourselves. And he loves us enough to not hold back from doing that. And it's helpful for us to remember as he does that kind of thing, every time he does that kind of thing, he is preparing us to receive his grace and his love. He is loving us in such times. You can be finding verse 30. In just a moment, we'll begin to read in verse 30. Uh, This is our second week in this section, verses 30 to 47. We saw the outline for for these verses last week, that what we find here are four claims that this Jewish crowd make about themselves, uh, four self-reports, and Jesus addresses each of those, and then he gives a counterclaim about them in verse 44. And we saw the first two of those claims last week. They were the claims that they do believe in him, and the claim that they are free and not enslaved. I'll just remind you that we noticed even as early as verse 33, they're giving as the basis for those self-reports a connection that they have with Abraham. That's going to be huge for us this morning. The last two claims on their part that we'll begin by looking at this morning very much belong together. It works well that they've fallen like this. And in fact, they pair with our Lord's counterclaim about them because they all center around the idea of paternity. They're going to claim in verse 39 that they are sons of Abraham, and in verse 41 that they have God as their father, and Jesus is going to reply that their father is Satan. Now there's a question that all of this talk presents to us that we need to think about quite a bit this morning, and that is the question, what do any of these claims mean? What do they mean when they describe these relationships? that they're talking about, being a child of God, having Satan as one's father. What what are we talking about here? And one thing that's going to become clear, I hope, is that there are two kinds of sonship that we could speak about, and in fact, two types that are at play in their conversation this morning. There's a kind of sonship that is very literal, you could say is, is necessarily only skin deep, And there's another kind of sonship that is reflected in what we would call, and they would call even true sonship. It's reflected in a likeness of character, a likeness even in ways of nature that is shared. This is what we'll begin to see this morning. I'll be reading, John, we'll just read the whole thing again. John 8, verses 30 to 47. I'll read from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. 
Speaking of Jesus, John continues in this way. And uh, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, <clears throat> They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I, tell you the because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We'll be walking through this morning, verses 37 to 47, and we'll do that under two headings if you're taking notes. 37 to 41 is where we're going to see and hear the, out, the playing out of these uh, claims to sonship. So that's the first thing we'll look at is claims to sonship, verses 37 to 41. And then Jesus will shift a bit as he is getting deep into this, these statements about sonship. In verses 42 to 47, he really shifts more toward descriptions of conflicting natures that are at play in this difference. First, let's hear what is said here concerning sonship. And what we're going to see is that Jesus makes a distinction. It's a distinction that was not unfamiliar to them. They understood this very well. Uh, what he does is he picks up on the term that they used about themselves back in verse 33, when they said, we are offspring of Abraham. Now, that word offspring is the word sperma, the word seed. We are, we are the seed of Abraham. And he picks up that word in order to make a distinction. There's more than one way we could think of the seed of Abraham. There is a purely physical reality, being the physical seed of a family line. And then there's something else that 
can be the same, but is not necessarily the same, that we would call being the son of someone or children of someone. He says of them in verse 37, I know you are seed of Abraham. I know you are offspring of Abraham. But he's just been talking to them about true sonship, not just seed. Now think of what they know about their own history, the, the, the actual line of Abraham. He was the first child born to Abraham. Ishmael was a seed of Abraham, wasn't he? And they definitely recognized that Ishmael and his descendants were not what they would call true heirs of Abraham. He had descended genetically from Abraham, but he was no child of Abraham in a meaningful sense. You go past Abraham's son, go to Abraham's grandson, uh, Esau, Jacob and Esau, right, the two brothers. It was said of Esau, the older will serve the younger. And what we find in these lines is that the, the seed of promise, the child of promise, the inheritance of the promises is being passed down from Abraham, but it's not distributed to all the seed of Abraham. There's even differences, as we see there with Esau, in terms of freedom. They recognized these differences. They didn't view all the seeds as enjoying the benefits of true sons. So Jesus picks up the word seed and starts to present a distinction. It's one that they recognized. And you can tell when they called themselves the seed of Abraham, they were not trying to differentiate there. They were using the word to mean children, to mean sons, true sons. But Jesus says in verses 37 and 38, I know that you are Abraham's seed, but your actions mark you out as somebody else's children. Now that notion of true children bearing it out in their actions, in their faithfulness to their father, in their likeness of their father, their honoring of their father, that was not at all lost on these Jews. Probably they sensed that even deeper than maybe we do today, the propriety of that. You remember what the prodigal son planned to say to his father in Luke chapter 15? He has publicly shamed his father, taken his inheritance and left, rejected him, come to his senses. Do you remember what he said? He planned to come back and say, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired hands. There's a whole connotation for them in Hebrew. They have, they have an idiom in that language uh, centered around the notion of being the son of someone or something. Uh, where when someone is intimately connected with something or somebody, or is deeply under the influence of something or somebody, they were called the son of that thing, or the son of that person. So for example, in John 12, 36, he's going to call those he's talking to, to become sons of light. Become sons of light. Judas, in chapter 17, is going to be called the son of destruction. Peter, in 1 Peter 3, 6, he's going to address Christian wives, and he's going to command them to emulate Sarah uh, when she submitted to her husband Abraham. And Peter writes to those Christian wives, he says, and you are her children. 
If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. This way of being a son or a child of is all about the meaningful connection between that attribute or that person and you. And think about what it means that they would use such a figure of speech, a son of light, son of, dis- of destruction. They would speak that way because they recognized, didn't they, that a true son ought to honor, represent their father. Now, they get his point, and they double down in verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Now, notice, they just said that uh, they are the seed of Abraham. Are they just, in their own minds, repeating exactly the same thing again? I don't think that's what they're doing. I think they're intentionally now claiming more than just the genetic, physical connection. They're claiming legitimacy. He's just questioned that. You're doing the works of your father. And so they double down. No, he is our father. We are his true children. They're claiming legitimacy. They have resemblance, family resemblance to Abraham. They are inheritors of Abraham. And look at how Jesus responds to them, continuing in verse 39. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. Still hasn't named that father yet, has he? But he is removing room for them to maneuver and to make claims. Abraham loved God. Abraham trusted God. Abraham submitted to God's truth. He sought to walk after the truth as God revealed it to him. It definitely would be good to be the child of that sort of posture. It's not a bad thing to desire. But the problem that they're facing has come to them because of the person that they are interacting with. If Jesus is who he says he is, if he is who he has been claiming himself to be all throughout this gospel, then they are by definition doing the opposite of that. They are not emulating Abraham, but there is somebody else that they're emulating. Now, they give a quick response here to him. They respond to his condemnation of their posture, who they, are, uh, who they are emulating, who they're representing, really, I think, with two things. One is something of a verbal backhand when they say to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. That's a statement about him. That's a suggestive statement about him and his, his own legitimacy. Who is your father? And they're going to do that again further down. They're going to ask whether or not it's true that he's a Samaritan. This has all, everything to do with mixed, sinfully mixed parentage. Now they're, they're, they're questioning his own legitimacy. But the second way they respond to him is with now this fourth and final claim. And it's a claim not simply of conformity to Abraham, but a claim of conformity to God himself. Verse 41, they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. See, they they have been following him. They get it now that he's not talking at all about simple, genetic, physical lineage, that he's talking about something about them, about their inner selves. And they claim God as their Father. 
This is a real turning point in the debate. This is an important statement for them to make here. If he's going to try, because this gets downright theological, even at a different level, if they're going to try to question Abraham as their father, surely they can't, he can't deny them God, because didn't God claim that relationship with them himself in the scriptures? They are Israelites, Jewish by blood, by birth. And what do we hear? Exodus 4, 22, God says, Israel is my firstborn son. Through the prophets, Jeremiah 31, 9, I am a father to Israel. God said those things. And he enshrined them in scripture. And so what are you going to say, Jesus? I hope you can see the real question that all of this is forcing the debate toward. Do you see that this is forcing us toward the question of legitimacy? The question isn't, is God the father of Israel? The question is, who is Israel? Israel, let's just, let's just brainstorm a bit here. Uh, Israel is the firstborn son of God, according to the scriptures. The child of promise, as it's described. Uh, typified, according to Galatians 4, not just by Abraham, but by Abraham's legitimate son, Isaac. As opposed to other sons. In other words, a natural connection to Abraham alone does not guarantee this, uh, this line. We've been seeing Jesus, even through this gospel, increasingly clarify a unique father-son relationship that he has with God the Father. Haven't we seen that in abundance? We heard last year, or maybe two years ago now, I forget, uh, working through Paul's letter to the Galatians, we heard Paul make very clear in Galatians chapter 3 that God's promise was when he promised, he gave his promises to Abraham of an inheritance, of, of the, all the blessings that God's people have been hoping for. His promise was to Abraham, it says, and to his seed, singular. Says, Paul goes out of his way to make that point, and that seed is Jesus. It's said even further than that, that the Mosaic law served to guard that physical people in line until the seed arrived. It was all about the arrival of the promised seed, the child of promise. Who is Israel? Jesus is Israel. The, very, the one fulfilling the very purpose of the nation itself, to, to reveal God to the whole world around them, even to bring the nations to God, to exist in a father-son relationship to him on this earth, representing him, to do what is pleasing to him. He just said in verse 29 of this chapter, I always do what is pleasing to my father. They're claiming sonship because they belong to the nation of Israel. Their problem is they're looking at the embodiment of the nation in a single individual staring back at them. I'll read just a, a few verses from Isaiah chapter 11. This really is amazing. This is not new. He has been preparing them for this. How are his promises and his blessings coming to the world? Through Abraham, through his, through his family, which becomes a nation. But what we find is this. In Isaiah chapter 10, we have 
incredible statements of God's judgment on the people of Israel. Statements about wipeout, about destruction. And then we get this very clear and incredibly blessed promise in Isaiah 11. It's going to talk about the stump of Jesse, which is a big deal. God's promises through the Abrahamic covenant were channeled into the Davidic covenant. They were given to David as the king, the representative of the nation. He is the son of Jesse, right? This is the line of David. God's promises will come through this line. And when Isaiah 11 starts, the line, the tree of Jesse, is a stump. It has been chopped down. What in the world? If that tree is gone, all hope is gone. God's promises were there. Salvation was there. Rescue was there. What do we find in Isaiah chapter 11? Then a shoot will spring from the stump, the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with, his, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. This is the shoot emerging from the stump of Jesse. Jesus is Israel. So he points out here in our text this morning, with comparisons between seed and true child, really he's pointing out what Paul's going to spell out very clearly in Romans chapter 2. Paul's going to say in Romans 2.28, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision, listen to this, is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. There have always been people with a physical tie to Abraham who have been excluded from God's people and God's promises and God's mercy. What's required you want to belong to the family of God? You should. Oh, you should. What's required is heart surgery. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. We must have a circumcised heart, and Jesus Christ is the only qualified surgeon. And because of what we saw, what I just read at the end of, of verse 28 there in Romans 2, because that heart surgery requires the Holy Spirit... And we just learned in John 7, 38 and 39, that the Holy Spirit is given to those who believe on Jesus Christ to be saved. This is then how we belong to the people of God. We belong to him in one way only, and that is if we are tied into the life-giving vine that is Christ. If we are connected to him, then we belong to God and to his family. Now, when we start talking about the circumcision of the heart in, ter in terms of these differences, because that's what distinguishes them, isn't it? And the gift of a new heart, 
that God promises to give his children. What we're talking about is a transformation in the realm of our very nature. So now from here forward, we're going to begin to hear descriptions. We're still seeing two lines, two lanes here. But we're hearing now descriptions of conflicting natures. And in fact, this is exactly where Jesus goes in the rest of this, verses 42 to 47. Let me read 42 to 44 here. And just listen for the extent to which Jesus is going to be describing differences fundamental to our very inner selves. We could even perhaps use the word nature. Fundamental to our affections, our will. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. And we'll stop there for a moment. What's he saying about their nature? What's he saying about the nature of sinful man that has not been brought to Christ for life? What is he saying? One thing he says is, You don't love what God loves. Your affections are located in an altogether different place. If God were your father, you would love me. What kind of father is God? Is he a trustworthy father or a capricious, untrustworthy father? Jesus says, I'm what he sent to you. What do you think about what he sent to you? We hear an, an analogy in Luke 11, 11. Uh, God is not a father who is asked for a fish on the part of his child and gives him a snake instead. Ha, ha, ha. He's not that kind of a father. His children don't ask him for an egg and he gives them a scorpion. If he is a good father, if he is the giver of good gifts, and he sent me... And you want to kill me. What are we finding out here? His children would love me. Because they would love what he loves. You don't call good what God calls good. You don't love what he loves. Second thing we hear here is, you can't bear it when he speaks to you. He'll say it down in verse 47. God's people hear him when he speaks. Jesus has always given the words of God, and they have constantly failed to grasp them. They have failed to take them in to themselves. He asks a question that seems to acknowledge what we've noticed all the way through this, the constant misunderstandings that have happened. Every time he talks to somebody, they are scratching their heads and being confused about what he's saying. Haven't we seen that? I forget how many we're on now of these misunderstandings. Verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? And of course, he's going to answer that, right? This is not a question that he doesn't know the answer to. What he literally says is, why do you not understand my speech? Or why do you not understand my manner of speaking? It's been described well. J.C. Ryle put it well here. I'll just share with you. I was, I'll tell you as preparation. I've been a huge fan of J.C. Ryle this week. He says some incredible things about this passage. We will end with a couple of lengthy quotes from him, so I'll apologize for referencing him 
a number of times here. But this is what he says about this question and about this situation. He says, they were constantly misunderstanding, misinterpreting, and stumbling at the expressions and language that he used to teach them. Did he speak of bread? They thought he meant literal bread. Did he speak of freedom? They thought he meant temporal and political freedom. Did he speak of their father? They thought he meant Abraham. And we've seen many more of these, haven't we? What they have is an entire starting point of assumptions and presuppositions in terms of how they think, how they reason, how they judge, that sets the natural man in conflict with God and his authority and his truth. Now, when we talk about that, we'll talk about it in more than one way, and for good reason. Sometimes we'll say of the unbeliever, as Jesus is describing it here, we'll say they are unable to hear him. Sometimes we'll say it like this, they refuse to listen to him. Those can suggest different pictures, can't they? And it brings us to a really important point, maybe the most important point for us this morning in terms of what we are seeing in this passage that we need to be very clear on. Uh, so I'm going to force us into the weeds a little bit, the weeds of, of wording of what Jesus says right here in verse 43 when he says, it is because you cannot bear to hear my word. I don't think we'll understand the rest of this if we haven't carefully heard him there. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. I read that from the English Standard Version. The ESV inserts the word bear to there in order to help us with understanding. I think they've done a good thing. But what you have in the original is you have the word for inability, and then you have the verb to hear. He says, it is because you, are, you, you cannot or you are unable to hear my word. The question, though, is what does he mean by an ability to hear? There might be more than these, but I think there are at least three possibilities. What, is, what could he be taken to mean here? You can probably guess. I think the third one is the right one. But there are, there are three possibilities. Maybe could he mean that he's describing a physical inability on their part to take something in? Like an auditory disability? They'd be perfectly willing to hear his word, but there's a deafness that prevents it. Is that what he's talking about? I don't think that's a good way to think of this, or the most helpful way. He could be talking about, you could say, he could be talking about a physical inability on his part to understandably get a message across to them. Is that the problem? There's an inability to communicate sufficiently? They'd be perfectly willing to hear him out, but they speak a language that he just can't speak, and so he can't bridge the communication gap. Is that what he's talking about? I don't think either of those are good ways to hear what Jesus is saying here. Instead, it seems to me he's describing a third thing, a third problem. What he's describing is a flaw at the level of their very nature. He's describing a people so corrupted by sin as to be naturally, in their nature, naturally opposed to God intolerant of all that which characterizes God. It's a flaw that exists by virtue of who they are, or you could say what they are. Now, that's a failure 
that still could be described in both of the ways we mentioned. It could be described in terms of ability. Romans 8 speaks of it this way. Look for a moment at Romans 8. I'll read verses 7 to 9. I think it's good for you to see this language on your own Bible. Paul's describing this difference as well here in Romans 8. And he says, beginning in verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now notice, by the way, he goes on to tell us what the solution is in verse 9. When he says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. This discrepancy, this difference, hangs on the presence of the Holy Spirit in someone's life. But without that, you are in the flesh, not in the Spirit. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So we are describing something of a true inability here on the part of those who still belong to the world. But, and this is very important, the Bible never describes that inability as an inability that removes or destroys the faculty of the will. The entire reason that human beings, all human beings, are moral agents is, simply put, because when we act, we're doing what we want to do. We are doing what we want to do. We are making authentic choices. The unbeliever is not an exception to that. The Bible doesn't say that when, before we are saved by the Spirit of God, when we are confronted with God's truth, nowhere does the Bible say that we would like to assent to it, but we just can't. The Bible rather says that when they are confronted with God's truth, it seems utterly ridiculous to them. They cannot tolerate it. 1 Corinthians is very helpful in this. You can just listen to these if you like. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. He doesn't say the word of the cross is written in a language that is incomprehensible to those who are perishing so that they can't get at it. He says, the word of the cross comes to those who are perishing. They take it, consider it, and judge it to be foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now what's helpful there is you hear both of those things, don't you? There is an inability and there is an unwillingness that would keep us from coming. And all of this is due to the reality of their nature. They are of this world, he says. It's a problem of who they are. And wouldn't you know it, this is exactly what Jesus now goes on to say in our text. You can turn back there if, you've, if I've made you stray. Except he frames it, he describes it in terms of their paternity. When he's talking about a different nature, he's talking about a different family resemblance. This is the nature of the family that you belong to. And now at last, hear our Lord's claim about them. 
that counters all of those others they've put forward. Verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, that's amazing. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Notice what we hear here. You cannot bear to hear my word. And in saying so, I'm describing a family resemblance that you bear. You are of your father, the devil. Now again, let's think about, about the picture that it's giving us here. He's not saying that Satan created them, is he? He's using that Hebrew idiom to describe someone so closely connected to and entirely under the influence of another. You betray your true spiritual allegiances in that you act just like your father. In fact, notice in verse 44, he emphasizes the fact there that their will is in complete operation. It's in full operation in this. The ESV says, your will is to do your father's desires. The New American Standard Version, I prefer, it, gets, it, it, it puts it exactly as it is written in the original Greek, and it says it this way, you want to do your father's desires. When you do those things, you are not being forced against your will, you're doing exactly what you want to do. And as they reflect this paternity, this family line, they reflect it in two ways that he describes. One, he says of Satan, he was a murderer from the beginning. That word murderer literally is man killer. It's a realm of activity that only makes any sense in the realm of humanity. From the beginning, as soon as there was a man to kill, Satan has sought to kill us. And here stands before them, you could say, the truest man that ever there was. The actual seed of promise from the seed of the woman. And they are seeking to kill him. Perfect fit. Perfect fit. He goes on, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. How are they imaging their father here? They image him very well in their unwillingness to stand in the light, to follow after truth. We heard it earlier in the gospel. Here's the, here, here's the judgment. Light has come into the world when Christ came, and men love the darkness rather than the light. They refuse to follow after the truth, to come into the light, and they're revealing their own nature when they do that. It's not because of a bad childhood that they had. It's not because of society tainting an otherwise good and noble person who would have, have appreciated the light. That's not the case. The truth of their own nature is on display in their opposition to God's truth. It is amazing how he puts it here. I mean, he's just said of Satan, when he lies, he's speaking out of his own nature. And then he says of them, because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. 
They have a rebellious and natural allergy to God's truth. You see the bold challenge that he follows this with in verse 46? Which one of you convicts me of sin? Now don't misunderstand. He's not claiming that no one in that group believes that he has sinned. He's challenging them, any of them, to prove, to demonstrate any sin in his life. And there's no proof of this, but it seems to me the whole force of the question necessitates that he pauses after he asks that question. And he looks around. And there are crickets. So he gives his conclusion, his diagnosis. If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Let me ask you, is he mudslinging here? Is he engaging in something rude? Is he insulting them? If this is true about them, The first thing they need is to hear it. They have to be confronted with the harsh, hard, painful reality. But it is those things. It's those things to us as well, because he's not stumbled upon an especially heinous, wicked group of people that afternoon. He is describing the human nature, fallen in sin, apart from the grace of God and Jesus Christ. And so this is a passage, and it ought to be a passage, that leaves a mark to us. I mean, there are hard and deep truths that our Lord is forcing on these who said they believed in him. Remember how this all started. Can I suggest to you this morning three ways that we might apply what we are hearing here before we pray and proceed to the Lord's table this morning? There are others, but I'll give you three of these. One, it it doesn't get much more revealing than this. Uh, What the Bible would say about our sin nature. Uh, What we are until God chooses to act in rescue. It doesn't get much more revealing than the way he puts it here. His description is just as true of you and me as it is of them. If Jesus Christ does not have mercy on us, there's just no getting around it. I mean, we can reject the Bible if we want. But if we receive the Bible as God's truth, its testimony is crystal clear about our fallen human nature. Before coming to him, before the Father brings me to the Son, I am not a neutral, interested party that is open and searching. Now, there may be a season in my life where I am becoming curious, I am asking questions I didn't ask before, I'm aware of shortcomings I wasn't aware of before. The point is, none of that is happening without God working in my life. None of that came from me. That was not natural to me. Our nature, fallen in sin, is opposed to God. It loves the darkness, and it must be divinely transformed if I am to come to Christ. Romans 3 is pretty telling. Paul gathers there around 10 separate places in the Old Testament where God speaks to the condition of man. 
He gathers them all up and lists them out. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. How much more would he need to do to make the point that he's trying to make? The last two ways it seems to me we could take this passage uh, and really be impacted in our daily lives. I'll just tell you without apology, I take these from J.C. Ryle. I told you what a big fan uh, I have been this week of what he said. I really appreciate his exposition of this text. So I'm going to quote him at length in both of these. One of them is the realization, externals, I mean, they are camping on externals, aren't they? We are the seed of Abraham. Externals are no more salvific today than they were then. And Ryle, many years ago, put it this way. He said, strange as it may seem, there are multitudes of so-called Christians who are exactly like these Jews. They will tell you that they are regular church people. They have been baptized. They go to the Lord's table, but they can tell you no more. Of all the essential doctrines of the gospel, they are totally ignorant of faith and grace and repentance and holiness and spiritual mindedness. They know nothing at all. But they are churchmen, and so they hope to go to heaven. There are myriads in this condition. He ends this way. Let us settle firmly in our minds that connection with a good church and good ancestors is no proof whatever that we ourselves are in the way to be saved. We need something more than this. We must be joined to Christ himself by a living faith. We must know something experientially of the work of the Spirit in our hearts. Third and finally, and this will be quick, don't we get a display in this text and in what Jesus says that there is a devil? Satan is our true and great enemy. Ryle puts it this way. There is a devil. We have a mighty, invisible enemy always near, one who never slumbers and never sleeps, one who is about our path and spies out all our ways and will never leave till we die. He is a murderer. His great aim and object is to ruin us forever and kill our souls. He is a liar. He is continually trying to deceive us by false representations. He is always telling us that good is evil and evil good. Truth is falsehood and falsehood truth. The broad way, good. The narrow way, bad. Millions are led captive by his deceit and follow him, both rich and poor, high and low, learned and unlearned. Lies are his chosen weapons. By lies he slays many. These are awful things. These are awful things but they are true. Let us live as if we believed them. Thoughts like these are very helpful. And they shouldn't lead to an improper kind of fear. They should lead to a proper kind of fear, though. A fear that produces caution and watchfulness in our living. They should also lead to an awe of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 3.20 tells us the power that is at work within us. As John himself here will write in 1 John 4.4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. 
If this is how fearful is our enemy, how great is our Savior. And thank the Lord that we do not put our hope, our confidence in ourselves, in our strength. We rest at the foot of the Lord Jesus Christ and his cross. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the gift of your word this morning, and I pray simply for us all just that. Lord, keep us by any means you choose. Keep us firmly fixed at the foot of your cross, clinging to your Son as our righteousness, as our only hope, and as the sure display of your love and goodness and mercy. You are God who never changes. You do not change. And therefore, your people are not consumed. Lord, help us to fix our hope on the cross of Jesus Christ. And help us then, Lord, to live a life of gratitude that is befitting what we know you did for us there. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.